1990s, a supercomputer built by IBM called Deep Blue played chess against then-world champion Garry Kasparov. There were two matches, each encompassing six games. The first match was won by Kasparov 4-2, but that loss netted Deep Blue a world first, the first computer program to defeat a world champion in a classical game of chess under official tournament rules. The second match, though, which took place in mid-1997, went to deep blue, 3.5 to 2.5. Those halves the result of three draws out of the six games. This earned deep blue the additional accolade of having been the first computer program to defeat a world champion in a match, a complete collection of six games, ever. This was, and still is by many, considered to be a milestone moment in the history of the game of chess, but also, more broadly, in the development of software, of what you might call a type of artificial intelligence, as long as we're sticking with a non-general intelligence definition of the term, software that can do impressive computation, and something that seems a bit like thinking, but which is really mostly just brute-forcing problems, with incredible algorithmic sophistication. That's not meant to underplay the significance of the event, however, Up until this point, it was considered a bit of a truism that chess was a game in which humans would probably always maintain the upper hand over our machines. Computers were powerful, but somewhat linear thinkers after all. And chess required creativity. The sheer number of possible moves and outcomes requires a sort of dexterity to one's thinking. Having shown that this wasn't necessarily the case, the dominant narrative shifted to the traditional Chinese board game, Go, which has in some ways simpler rules than chess, but a far larger set of potential moves. And thus, it should require more human intuition. The way that we think, it was thought, would forever give us an advantage over computers at this game, despite AI's ever-increasing sophistication and strength. This assumption was also disproven, though it took nearly a decade to get to the point where a piece of software built by Google called AlphaGo, defeated over the course of five matches, 18-time world champion of Go, Lee Sadol, utilizing a new approach. While Deep Blue mostly relied on brute force computation, figuring out all possible moves among millions and choosing the best ones from that collection, AlphaGo made use of neural networks, which are algorithms that are set up in such a way that they can recognize patterns and a subfield of machine learning called reinforcement learning, which is a way to teach software to do better by incentivizing it to achieve certain outcomes. So learning from experience and becoming familiar with how the game of Go is played, rather than simply looking at all possible options and attempting to very quickly extrapolate a win from that data set. AlphaGo won four of the five matches and was awarded the rank of Grand Master by the Korea Baduk Association, which is the association that oversees professional Go players in South Korea. In both cases, it was thought to be impossible by the mainstream that these games would ever be dominated by software, up until the moment that they were. In the aftermath, there was shock and alarm. There were freakouts by players and by the institutions that managed these games, these tournaments. And there were heightened worries 
that machines would come for some other sacred cow next. Some new thing that we consider to be quite human, perhaps exclusively so. Things that we perhaps at times have come to define ourselves by. We are clever animals after all, so playing chess, playing Go, these are human things. Other creatures might play at playing, they might move pieces around on the board or whatnot, but they're not really playing chess. And then out of nowhere, seemingly, these bits and bytes, these tools that we have built, outcompete our very best. At the moment, as of the day I'm recording this, AI has moved on to the world of competitive video gaming, stomping pretty much everyone in the world of StarCraft II, which is a very popular, very strategy-focused online video game. And other specialized AI have moved on to other sorts of games as well, some already having established top positions in that game, others still working on doing so. There's something somewhat deflating about all of this, even when you remember that it was humans who built these machines. There's still something subtly wrong-feeling about the whole situation, almost like we've been dethroned against our will by our intellectual offspring. And if we allow ourselves to think about what that might mean, we can't help but wonder if we have become outmoded, no longer valuable for anything. What can we do that they cannot learn to do better? What I'd like to talk about today is automation and what it might mean for the future of social expectation, the things that we create, and the work that we do. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Wired, and it's actually a brief article followed by an interview with one of the Grandmaster game players mentioned in the intro, former chess Grandmaster of the world, Gary Kasparov. The piece is entitled, Defeated Chess Champ Gary Kasparov Has Made Peace with AI. The article very quickly explains a few concepts, like how Deep Blue was hand-coded to play chess, while AlphaGo was hand-coded to learn to play Go by watching and playing matches before getting into the meat of the matter, which is the interview with Kasparov. In this interview, he makes a handful of interesting points that I think are worth addressing before we take a look at what this larger conversation might mean. When asked a question regarding his overall message about artificial intelligence, things he wants the public to know, and why he often speaks about the subject, despite understandably not being a big fan of it in many ways, is that there is a certain inevitability to AI. Sure, you can pass laws in the United States and Europe banning or diminishing investment in AI-categorized research and development, but that just means that other places, other governments and entities will decide how these things are built and how they develop over time instead. You can be wary and worried about these things, in other words, but it's almost certainly too late to put this cat back in the bag. And it's anything but certain that doing so would be a good thing anyway, despite the many problems these systems can and probably will cause. On that note, he also says that in some ways we might benefit from increasing the speed of AI development because of how damage is usually caused well before a new, optimally better-than-before status quo settles in post-disruption. The replacement of workers with AI-powered automation, for instance, truly sucks for a great many people. And while it's true that new jobs are often created at some point after that replacement, 
as a result of this implementation, there is a gap between when these people are fired, are made redundant, and when new jobs arise. On top of that, there's no guarantee that those jobs will arrive, that the people who lost their jobs will be capable of doing the new work that maybe emerges at that later date, or that they will want to do those jobs in the first place, if they are in fact available in the geographic region where these people are located. There's a chance, then, that there could be benefits to speeding up our progress in this space, increasing the turnaround time of new innovations, allowing those new paradigms to arrive sooner. This is anything but certain, but it's worth considering, especially since we've already seen what the alternative looks like. And it's not great for people in the industries that are slowly or quickly being gobbled up by automation of various flavors. Perhaps closing that gap could be one of the answers to this problem. Kasparov also makes the point that it's difficult to assess our progress when it comes to building something like human intelligence, because we really don't know what human intelligence is. We can experience it, but we can't fully explain it. It's not clear, or for certain, that we're not just immensely complex algorithms, just as it's not clear that we are not tapping into some consciousness ether that exists in another dimension. We just don't know. And because we don't know what human intelligence looks like, or how to truly define it accurately, we can't properly assess how close or far away we might be to building something that is like it, or replicating it wholesale. There is a sense that we're still stumbling around in the early stages of artificial intelligence, and that we probably haven't figured out the right overall philosophy or approach to doing intelligence the way that nature has done intelligence. Which makes sense. Engineers take a wildly different approach to making such things compared to the competition-based, evolution-powered alternative. That said, there's also a chance that we will accidentally create a truly intelligent, conscious, living thing at some point and simply not realize it. Because alongside not having the proper metrics to measure, we also don't have proper measuring systems and tools, means of measuring according to those metrics, worked out. So the field, while innovating like crazy, is also wading through very muddy water in this regard right now. There's a sense throughout this interview that Kasparov has come to appreciate these sorts of machines and their utility, especially when paired with human instinct and ingenuity and creativity and other things that AI struggle with currently. He notes that the current world chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, is fun to watch because he has spent so much time studying these AI-based games, and thus he's learned something new from this distinct approach to a traditionally human-played game. Seeing this new point of view, in other words, has changed him as a player, helped him see things from a different angle, and thus he arguably became a better overall player for it. The same is true of so-called centaur players, who have access to computers as they play these games against other humans or AI opponents. Machine-augmented human players have a far better record against both human and machine opponents than unaugmented human players. And that's not because the machines are always right or because the human beings involved are purely brilliant creative individuals. It's the combination of the machines offering up interesting new perspectives and options and the humans using their creativity and instinct to utilize those options presented by the computer as part of a grander strategy or a momentary instinctual whim. Finally, Kasparov notes 
that the way we use AI determines its value and ethics, rather than the AI itself determining those things. A quote from one of his answers in that piece. Quote, People say, oh, we need to make ethical AI. What nonsense. Humans still have the monopoly on evil. The problem is not AI. The problem is humans using new technologies to harm other humans. End quote. In other words, these tools are still just tools, just like a hammer. You can use a hammer to build things, but you can also use it as a weapon. And the way we decide to use it is up to us. The hammer is neutral. That said, you could build a hammer that shoots bullets and is covered with spikes and fire, and that might incentivize people to use that particular hammer for violent purposes rather than constructive ones. Similarly, we can build software that empowers people, or we can build software that helps people victimize other people. The shape of the tool can influence its use, as can the social, legal, and technological structures that surround that tool. Pass laws that disincentivizes certain uses make it socially unacceptable in many different ways to victimize people with these technologies, and you accomplish many of the same things as optimizing the tool itself for the purpose that you want to see more of in the world. There are a great many potential offshoot conversations one could have after reading this article, but there are three in particular that I'd like to address here. The first is that there seems to be this overarching expectation from experts and from the general population that everyone is under threat of being replaced by automated systems of some kind in the near or near-ish future. And this sentiment is quite possibly true. I say this because a lot of the work that most people do today is centered around or informed by systematized processes. This is a result of the breaking apart of the tasks and specialization push that began in the 19th and really picked up steam in the 20th century, leading to industrialized production and economies of scale and other wonderful things that allow us to produce more for cheaper than ever before, systems upon which our modern abundance is predicated. But because of that specialization and systemization, we are also, many of us, trained to behave more like computers, more like cogs in a larger machine, because that makes us more trainable, more interchangeable, and more replaceable. Replaceable by other people, but also by new innovations, whether we're talking about cotton gins or artificial intelligence. This isn't an inherently negative thing. There are pros and cons to this state of affairs, but it is something that makes a great deal of the work that we do susceptible to replacement with automated stand-ins. And this is true of any task or collection of tasks that can be outlined as a set of instructions. That is what an algorithm is, after all. And the more complex algorithms can handle more sets of instructions, with more edge cases taken into consideration. So even the traditional defense of certain careers requiring too much complex decision-making and creativity is not necessarily a solid means of protection, because these technologies are in the process of infringing upon those spaces as well. This does not need to be a bad thing. It just seems to be under the current paradigm, because most of us need to make money in order to pay the bills, to buy food, and so on. We cannot survive, most of us, without jobs. And that means if someone or something takes our job or kills off that entire career path, that sucks for us. It sucks for anyone impacted by that kind of change. 
If we had stronger safety nets and systems that could keep people okay in between careers, or to ensure that we're more capable of working within the newly established meta-context of this shift, working with the AI and the bots and the algorithms and everything else, rather than being completely replaced by them. These moments might be less panic-inducing and more interesting or even exciting. After all, this is work that some human formerly had to spend their time doing. And now machines, which don't care, as far as we know, how boring the task that they're doing happens to be, or how much effort it takes or how dangerous it is, are doing that labor instead. Objectively, that is pretty rad. So it's important to remember here that much of the horribleness surrounding this issue is often more related to economic, social, and governmental issues rather than purely technological ones. Second, because of this newish reality, it's likely that at some point we will need to fundamentally change our education systems and our expectations of what it is to become educated. I suspect, and I am definitely not alone in this, that the new dynamic will include some kind of integration of lifelong learning structures into the current structure that we already have in most places of fundamental education. For many of us today, if we're lucky, we get some kind of primary education into our teens, perhaps get some more focused education after that at university or the equivalent, and then some of us get our master's or doctorates or even further specialized education after that. But regardless of how far that education takes us, for the majority of people, that's where education ends. That's the cutoff point. And it makes sense that this is the case if you see education as preparation for the work that you're going to be doing from that point forward for the rest of your life. But if that expectation of lifelong work, a single or just a couple of lifelong careers, if that changes, it makes sense that we might want to change the educational assumptions underpinning that expectation as well. Now, this is not a new idea. Lifelong learning is actually baked into many cultures, and some educational systems make accommodations for those who want to continue learning as they get older, or who want to pursue more knowledge just for the fun of it post-retirement. But such systems will almost certainly need to be expanded dramatically in scope and scale if we're going to help people get the new education that they need, to acquire new skills that they need. If their profession or entire career path disappears when they are still decades away from retirement age, or if the job for which they were trained no longer exists just a few years after they graduate. We've already seen some efforts in this space, from some universities and from the private market, selling or giving away online courses in particular, often in the form of MOOCs, or Massive Open Online Courses, because of how comparably well these generally, at your own pace, setups scale. This space is kind of a wild west, though, at the moment, and it's not clear how best to set up systems meant to regularly help people gain new skills in education at different points throughout their lives, and perhaps a great many times. It's equally unclear how we can shift public perception of such behavior so that it doesn't seem like a failure that a person should be ashamed of or arduous work that one should be resentful of to undertake this kind of supplementary education. Ideally, this is seen as an opportunity and as the cool civilizational upgrade that it could be as long as humans are not being left in the lurch as these automation innovations are implemented. And third, 
the work that we do and how we do that work will almost certainly change as a result of these other shifts as well. As I mentioned before, this needn't be an inherently negative thing. It could be exciting and interesting. It could also be an opportunity to do higher level work than we were previously able to do on scale. When the most dangerous, boring, repetitive, non-growth-oriented labor, both physical and computational, is done by our tools, by our hardware and software, that frees up human minds and bodies that are capable of thinking and acting more abstractly, more creatively, to do other things. This doesn't mean that we can't continue to do these things that automation can do. People still bake bread in the traditional way because they enjoy it, and because the output is somewhat different than the mass-produced bread that makes up most of the market. The same is true of doing accounting by hand or illustrating a portrait, even when a computer could do a pretty bang-up job of both if you upload your taxes or a photo. But it does mean that we might have more of a choice, and that fewer people will have their time, their lives, relegated to mind-numbing responsibilities that they will definitely do when their paycheck depends on it, but would not choose to do if more interesting options were available. And those options would, theoretically at least, be available, because we would have infrastructure in place to let anyone learn whatever they want to learn, and thus most people would be more capable of taking employment higher up the production, the economic, the creativity pyramid. Like Kasparov, I also tend to think it very possible that many of us will find careers, whatever our specialties, working with AI, with bots, with other types of automation, in the near future. As these systems become more capable, they will likely still need human companions, shepherds if you will, to guide them, to herd them, to make use of the information they provide us, to make moral and ethical choices so that they know how to operate and what to optimize for. This fits with the concept of human beings becoming increasingly empowered by what are sometimes called agents, bits of software, like upgraded personal assistants, that we always have access to and which can amplify our capabilities in numerous ways. Our herd, our bots, may take different shapes and have different specialties, do different things, but those who know how to wrangle them, which doesn't necessarily mean that you have any coding know-how, by the way, those who know how to work with these things, with these agents, with these automated systems, and how to get them to do what they're meant to do, and as well as possible, they will likely have a lot of opportunities in the coming years, regardless of the specific industry in which they are working. It may be that we have a long while to wait before any of the infrastructure that would seemingly be required to convert this threat into an opportunity is available and especially available on the necessary scale. But it is thinkable now, today, to be considering how we might pave the path for what comes next, what we might do to build bridge-like technologies and systems to help span that gap, to help people currently in between jobs and careers. We can ask ourselves how we might leverage the very same technologies that put them out of work to help them find their next opportunity and to be okay, to be safe, and to flourish in the meantime. There are many possible ways that all of this could actually happen in terms of the specifics, which is good, because we will likely need a great many solutions to choose from and to try and to experiment with and to evolve if we want them to be applicable around the world. 
to the great many wonderfully different people who could potentially benefit from them. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups by Daniel Coyle. There's a sort of template for certain types of businessy, vaguely sociological writings of this kind, where the author has some core thesis statements that they want to extrapolate on, and then they go through and find a bunch of case studies that help them make those thesis statements and arguments memorable, but also demonstrate their credibility. This is definitely that type of book, and there are pros and cons to that format, but I personally found it fairly valuable and interesting. I am somebody who tends to work solo on almost everything for a variety of reasons, but I also think it's valuable to understand how to work with other people, whatever position you might have within that community that you're a part of or temporarily a part of. So it was interesting to read this collection of case studies, actually, in particular, of different ways that communities are organized, different ways to look at the development of culture within different types of communities, and the types of effects that these things can have on the way people behave, on how productive people are, and so on. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. And you can find some of my other work at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.